Father in heaven, thank you for a new day, a new morning, an opportunity to be together and to study and to prepare to serve you in the best way that we possibly can as leaders of a church and uh, elders in uh, seeking to assist the pastor in leading your work. Pray that you'll guide and direct us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning I want to mention something to you. Um, to be perfectly honest, I've not paid a whole lot of attention to this magazine, but it is a resource, and I think uh, you might want to know about it. This happens to be the latest edition of the Elders Digest. Feel free to take some back to your elders as well. I have a whole box of them here, and I'm happy to let that happen. If you happen to want more or need more, you can... Uh, can take them here, and if we come up short, by all means, we'll have them. Uh, I believe that you can subscribe to this, and I wish that I could tell you I know exactly about it, but I haven't. I'd love to have you check it out and tell me what you think about it, uh, any of those kinds of things, but this is a quarterly journal for elders, and it's nice to have resources. I think it's like any other tool or any other thing that you have in your, in your hands, you have to determine whether or not it is appropriate for you and what you believe and so on and so forth. The only reason I say that is because I've not looked at it carefully. And uh, you know, there's a little bit of, maybe a lot of it out there about different kinds of styles of worship and so on and so forth that I personally have concerns about. And if that's being promoted by this magazine, then I would suggest that you use your God-given wisdom to sort that part of it out. But often in these resources, there are good ideas and sources of, of leadership instruction and all, and I encourage you to uh, take advantage of that and uh, get, uh, get the value out of it that is there. I want to back up from where we were yesterday and cover just a a little bit that I rushed off of to make sure that you don't have any questions because we ran out of time and then I'll try to uh, get us back on track. I really hate to rush past some things. Um, we talked a little about committee members there and the different kinds and then I jumped on past that. Uh, did you, I don't know if you had a chance to go back and look at it, but if you look at I, can't, I don't know what slide it is, but in your notes, it's probably about, the, about five pages from the back. And it was talking about an initiator, an elaborator, a challenge, a, uh, challenger, appeaser, and an energizer, uh, different kinds of people that are on committees. And it's just kind of nice to know that there are uh, ways of thinking about how people function on committees. Sometimes we get the idea if people don't function the way I function on a committee, it's because they're all bad. And I'm the only one who's doing it right. And sometimes we fail to realize that the value of committees is that you have different people with different talents, different personalities, and those, uh, those are advantages to us because it balances out a committee. But if we don't realize what their approaches are and the way that they think, and what they're trying to accomplish, we may see them, see them as antagonistic or opposing us when they may just be trying to draw out some other ideas. 
and that's the value of, of this kind of instruction. And it doesn't seem that it matters whether a church is large or small, conflicts within committees seem to happen almost naturally. <laughs> I don't like the word naturally, but seem to happen uh, just all too easily. And so I, I want you to have that information so you know a little bit about it. Going a little farther down, it talks about the agenda, and I discussed that last time. Opening the meeting with prayer and a brief devotional is valuable, whether it's an elders meeting, a board meeting, or some other committing meeting. I think most of you function that way already. Your committees function that way. It's just bringing that up. But every committee should have a secretary. If it's a church board, it should be the church clerk would be the secretary of that committee. And those records are valuable records. For the church board, they're required records. Every church must have a clerk taking careful record of the meeting. But let me suggest this. Official clerk's minutes of a church board should not include every little detail discussed. Did you catch what I said? Because what you don't need is a permanent record of banter back and forth. You don't need that. This is an ongoing discussion until you finally reach a conclusion. When I first started pastoring, I didn't realize that. And in talking to conference lawyer at one point, the conference lawyer made it clear to me that the only thing that should be on those, uh, on those minutes are the official actions of the committee. And there may be other things that you as a committee decide need to be on there that might, quote, not be an official action, but it needs to be somehow registered there, and, and that that is what needs to be included. But include the actions there, and you don't include who voted and who voted for it and who voted against it. You simply include the fact that it either passed unanimously or there was one dissenting vote or something to that effect. So just that you understand that part. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's, uh, you use Robert's rules, that kind of, uh, if you use that, uh, then there's actually no discussion until there's a motion on the floor. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's, absolutely, and that's a correct procedure process. And um, the reason for Robert's rules of order or whatever process we use, and that's the basic standard, is because everybody can agree on that, and that's the way you function on a committee. And then that just keeps everybody from saying, well, you are manipulating everything. No, when you do it the way it's supposed to happen, nobody's manipulating. You're simply functioning that way. And that's exactly correct, as John said. If you put a motion on the floor and there's a second, then it can be discussed. There are some things that you might be having a kind of a general discussion on that may not need a motion or want a motion at that particular point and you need to discuss, but that you've got to be a little careful of that so you don't get carried away. Um, the agenda, by the way, keeps you from wandering. Uh, first of all, not being on the agenda means you don't bring it up. And having an open agenda where just people add on things, if you want a meeting that'll start at seven o'clock in the evening and finish at 12, use one that does, uh, use a process that doesn't include an agenda. And, and that can be really an annoying type of thing. So 
One of the things is that has always frustrated me about committee meetings is I cannot stand, my words, a committee where the chairperson does not keep that committee moving. Where they seem to, when it hits a lag point, the chairperson's kind of thinking a little bit about it, and a couple minutes later says, all right, um, maybe it's time to move on to the next item. The chairperson of that committee makes a lot of difference in how that functions, how you get your work done, when you get your work done, and getting out of that meeting. Most of us have things, our responsibilities in our life we want to do, and the church is not the only thing we do. And so it's good to keep that committee process moving ahead. The, um, one of the first items on the agenda, it says in your material, is the reading and accepting the minutes of the committee's last meeting. Uh, that's true. I think that's important because that keeps, you, gives you an opportunity to review what took place at the last meeting. The reason the clerk keeps the meetings, I'm talking about board right now, or uh, somebody to be a secretary on the, on the uh, Board of Elders, and my suggestion is the head elder might want to be that person, or an assistant elder, who, whatever you would decide, but keep those records. But you bring those records back at the next meeting to review them to make sure that what the clerk wrote down is what actually happened, because that becomes a permanent record, and just recently, I had a pastor asking me about a certain situation, and I said, well, the only way you're going to know if that actually happened is by going back in the clerk's records. And they, he had to go back 10 years to try to find out if that action had indeed been taken, and I can't remember if he did find it or if there was just a brief mention of it, but that can make the difference years later about how you respond to a situation and uh, it's, it, it's just a reality. I would like to tell you that I would like to encourage you to look at your board agenda. You're the leaders of the church. Yesterday we talked about what you need to be doing in relationship to outreach and planning and so on. After the clerk's report and the treasurer's report, the first item on your agenda should be what? This, this agenda, it's just what you said down here, the first item on the agenda is reading the minutes. Right. After those, that item, and after the treasurer's report. Okay? So you've, you've gotten through those two important items, but what are the first, what is the first item that should be on there? It should be your master plan of evangelism. If you look at your church manual, you'll find that the church manual says that the major responsibility of the church board is the planning of the soul winning, the outreach of that local church. And what happens is if you make that the last item or only getting on there occasionally, the major focus of the work of that board does not get done. You'll spend your time talking about boilers that need fixing and plumbing that needs to be adjusted and carpeting that needs to be replaced and Sabbath school quarterly things that need to be uh, ordered and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You'll spend all your time doing that. It'll absorb all your time if you want to and you'll never get to the most important thing. Oh, it's nine o'clock already and we haven't even talked about soul winning. Well, let's just table it till next time. You understand what I'm saying? That's what happens to the local church. 
but you are the elder or an elder on that board, you want to make sure that is your priority and you're spending your time dealing with that. And those other items might need to get a table to the next meeting or handled outside of the meeting in some cases unless there's uh, an action that needs to be taken about the cost and, and so on. So just want to encourage you with that. Yeah, Marvin. Well, you did some work items like that. Most part of that was how it should be heard and like that. Get the end of it, looking at the clock, like, okay, this is good. And talk about for like two minutes. Mm -hmm. And like, well, that's what we should have been talking about at the beginning. And most important thing is like, the least amount of time. So sometimes it would be good to table it just so you'd have time to talk about it, but they pass it off with two minute discussion and then they say, well, we talked about it, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly, yes. If the pastor is the one that makes the agenda and the evangelism isn't where you say it should be, mm -hmm. then that's up to the board of elders to talk to the pastor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, now I want you to know that this is something we tell our pastors and we speak about it frequently but that doesn't mean it always translates into action. And we really encourage the elders to be providing that support and that leadership. And I'll assure you, we'll come in right behind you if there were ever any question on that. Because there's no other reason for your church to exist, folks. No other reason for your church to exist except you're there to win souls. If that's not the first thing on your agenda after these other items that I mentioned, then your church's priorities are in the wrong place. I can just tell you that. And, and will continue to be that way uh, as part of that. Of course, don't let people manipulate any committee meeting, board or otherwise, and do that. All right, the last thing I want to uh, mention from yesterday is the elder and the church uh, as a church leader in terms of pa pastor, elder, team work together. Um, pastors are all different people. They all work differently. Some pastors only have one church. Most pastors have two or three. Almost all Michigan pastors have two or three churches. One even has four. That is not as uncommon as you might think. Some conferences, including Wisconsin, have churches, five churches to a pastor, and, uh, and others, Illinois as well. That happens in churches, uh, in pastors, it happens to pastors and conferences where the finances don't allow to provide that many pastors. And, uh, you know, some, if you go down to Florida, okay, you're going to find a little different. But even in Florida, they face challenges where they use lay pastors, trained lay pastors, to be able to cover that because of financial uh, inequality and being able to make sure that the churches are covered and have the leadership they need. Because of that, pastors work differently. And I'm not here to tell you how a pastor should work in every, situ in every single situation. Some elders would love to hear from a pastor almost every day. That's unreasonable. I can tell you that's unreasonable. Some elders would like to hear from a pastor once a week. That's more reasonable. The head elder I'm talking about, not the elder, not all the elders, but the head elder that may be more reasonable 
as long as those conversations are relatively brief where they're just touching base, making sure things are moving on in the church. But sometimes there are really busy periods in the church. And if he's got three, three churches and communicating with all three elders during that time might be tough. One solution, get all three on the phone at the same time. Most phones today have the ability to bring in multiple conversations. The iPhone now has the ability to do six conversations at the same time. In other words, six people on the phone at the same time. And, and it's a very simple process. Get everybody in, have that conversation, you've covered the bases, you move on. Uh, at least once a month, you should have a good conversation, not just at a meeting, with the pastor about how things are going and issues that you may need to raise and doing those kinds of things. You're part of the team. You're one of the team leaders in the Adventist church. You need to be aware of what God needs you to do. The difference between a pastor and elder, um, we talked a little bit about that yesterday and the similarities as well. But I do want to, the part I skipped over was, what is the pastor's part? And I am, where am I now so you can follow me? I'm about three pages from the end under the section that says pastor's part. It looks like this on the screen and it's the middle slide. So it's about three pages from the back. And when I say three pages, three sheets because there's actually double-sided. So um, that, that makes some difference to that. Everybody with me now? The pastor's part is to train, equip, and motivate elders in all their churches. Uh, because of the fact that a church pastor, had, church pastor having more than one church, it's good, especially for training purposes, to get all the elders together so you're not duplicating effort. And that may mean that uh, some elders have to drive a little farther, go to one of the other churches or whatever. Of course, the elders' meetings need to be taking place on a regular basis, and the pastor should be calling for those. And the pastor should also be providing you with resources. So one of the things I'm trying to do here is to provide you with some resources. If you don't have a church manual, I'm not going to ask you if you have one or not, but if you don't have one, upstairs is where you can get one. You should have your own church manual. You should read it, and you should mark it up. Every five years, the church manual changes. The good news is only little pieces change. But it's good to know where those changes are because often those changes are of some kind of significance. That's why they were changed. And you need to understand that there might be a slight adjustment to process or policy that you would need to know about. And usually those things would be identified and your pastor can tell you what they are. Right now we're between new manuals. In other words, in 2010, no, 15 was our last uh, general conference session. That's when they can be changed. And the church manual did have some modifications to it. And the newest version came out about a year later takes that long for that new manual to get printed, all the adjustments to be edited, and so on. If you don't have one of those manuals, I encourage you to get it and know what's in it. Also, we gave you yesterday the Elder's Handbook, and that is, a, is not the manual, but it's helping to put together various processes 
good things in there like how to do a funeral, how to do uh, those kinds of things because sometimes elders have been called upon to do funerals. Uh, in between pastors, I know of elders that have gone and done funerals. In between pastors, gone and done anointing services without a pastor. They can do that. No reason why you can't. You don't have to be ordained to do a funeral. Uh, it's nice to have those kinds of things. And then there's all other kinds of guides that are included in there and can be of good help. Another part of the pastor's part is the curriculum of the church, the church organization administration. Um, and that, by the way, is a training, uh, a training curriculum. Understanding organization administration, church growth, care of new converts, worship leadership, preaching and visitation, function and chairing of committees. We're going to talk about a little bit more of that here today. Uh, respect, invite uh, them for special pastoral visitation, spend time together, support the elders' family, special attention to elders' children, help them in their spiritual life. This is the work of the pastor. That's the pastor's part. He should be giving you support. A pastor who's thinking this process through carefully is going to put 80% of his time. Now, that's a rough percentage I'm giving you but to make a point. I actually had a pastor just this last week tell me he puts 80% of his time into his elders, his deacons, and his deaconesses, the leaders of his church. Why is he doing that? Because he's putting it into you to do the work and connecting them. You're all right. He's realizing that you are the leaders and he is wanting to train you. He's wanting you to be able to be empowered and to have the experience and all the information that you need and the resources that you need so that the church can continue to grow and you, he can spread himself out and spread himself out with you. And that's an important part of this. That means pouring himself into supporting you, your family, your children, uh, your spiritual life, helping you through any struggles that you may be having, uh, connecting with you as the elders. So that's part of what's happening there. Uh, let's talk then about delegation. The pastoral stress that comes from uh, pastoral ministry is often because the pastor tries to do it all themselves. Himself working in this, trying to accomplish it, afraid to give it to somebody else, or maybe he has an elder or two who says, that's your job, Pastor, not mine. I'd like to encourage you to know it's your job to be involved in most of what pastoral ministry can involve at some point. And for him to delegate to you is exactly what the pastor should be doing. Along with uh, responsibilities, pastor must also delegate authority. That means that I don't just tell you to do something, I give you the, the authority to accomplish that, correct? Nothing worse than being told to do something but you have no authority to accomplish it, all right? That's, that just, that's frustrating. That's why the church and business session should vote a budget that the church board can actually implement. They have the authority to implement that according to the church manual. But they can also have committees under them that are also authorized to spend that money. And they shouldn't be micromanaging that process. For example, the Sabbath school department may need $500 a quarter in order to be able to do their work. 
So I authorized them to spend the $500 and then authorized the Sabbath school superintendent to have the authority to spend that money. And when that superintendent brings that back to the church board and said, I spent that money, I have I went up to my $500 and this is what I did with it. And they said, well, you shouldn't have spent it on that. Hang on, you gave them the authority to do it. And unless there was some major problem with what they did, let them use their authority to do it instead of micromanaging and that kind of thing. So that's giving authority. Pardon me? Absolutely, absolutely. The captains of tens, the captains of a hundred all had authority. Communicate. Keep communication going back and forth. We live in an age when communication is so possible. We, but we are all strung out with it as well. We're almost over-communicating. And everybody else is communicating spam and all that other stuff to us. I would like to suggest a rule of thumb to you, and it would be good for you to have a conversation with your pastor, especially if you're frustrated with the way the pastor is communicating or not communicating. I don't believe that the pastor or any, any human being should answer the phone every time it rings. You won't get anything done. Honest, you won't get anything done. I don't think you should answer the phone every time the phone rings. If a pastor is in a Bible study, he shouldn't be answering your phone call. He's right now concentrating on a spiritual battle between uh, that person and the other person trying to understand what's going on. He doesn't have time to talk to you on the phone because you need a phone number or because you whatever. You understand what I'm saying? So we have to be reasonable in relationship with that. Now personally, for general business, that's not critical, not time sensitive, not an emergency. I think it's reasonable for a pastor to return a phone call within 24 hours. Okay, within 24 hours. My goal in my job is to return phone calls within 24 hours, if at all possible. I try to return texts that day. I try to return texts that day. Notice I didn't say return text immediately. I try to do that as soon as I can. And for emails, I try to answer emails once a day, if at all possible, certainly within 24 to 48 hours. Now, an emergency is a whole lot different. But if I don't do that, I'm going to get so many texts and so many emails and so many phone calls. And that is part of my work. It may be part of the pastor's work and all, but it needs to have reasonableness to it. And as I said yesterday, empower your pastor to take a day off and know how to function with them. And it may be your day off as well, so there may have to be an agreement that you just help the church not worry about that on the day off unless it's an emergency and then they know the way to do it. With me, on my phone, my message says, if this is an emergency, call back immediately. That means twice. Now, I had a guy call me at like 1, I mean 11 or 12 o'clock at night, one night, and he got my message and said, if this is an emergency, call me, call me uh, back immediately. So he called me back immediately. The only difference is I know this guy. For about 30 years, I know this guy. And for him, anything that's important to him is an emergency. And that is, anytime he calls me, it's important to him, so it's an emergency. 
And so I listened to his message and he said, call, you said if it's an emergency, call back. And then I found out what it was that he wanted. And I said, it was no emergency. <laughs> he wasn't dying and it wasn't, the problem he had was certainly not gonna be solved that time at night, all right? Now, that's all an exception, not a rule. Most people are respectful and understand what a real emergency is. And uh, you can set your iPhones and all to uh, actually screen calls and, and do that kind of thing and, and uh, then to let calls through when they come through the second time so that you get an actual emergency. All right, enough of that. I need to keep moving ahead. Make sure that the pastor team is evaluating uh, as well as you go along. The pastor should evaluate you. You should evaluate the pastor. And you should be comfortable with evaluation. That's a little threatening, I know, because nobody likes to be told that they're not doing something well. We all like to be told we're doing something well, and that's part of evaluation. But we can all grow, myself included. After 40 years of ministry, I can still learn. I'm still learning. And I have people that sometimes, you know, make suggestions to me. And I'm so thankful when they do that because I can indeed make improvement. All right, let's talk about the elders part in relationship to this. The first thing you have to do is find time to work. And that can be a really big challenge. I'd like to suggest to you that you need to allow four hours a week to do your job as an elder. In some cases, you may need more. If you're using a lot more time than that, make sure that you're not neglecting your work, whatever that may happen to be, and your family as well. But you should realize that this is not just Sabbath morning. And it's not just something that you can come to church on uh, at, on, uh, at 9.30 in the morning and now get your work done and getting ready for the platform and those kinds of things. No, you need time outside of that to plan, to visit, to do all those kinds of things along the way. You also want to maximize your pastor's strengths. If your pastor is a strong leader, then support him in that leadership role. But every pastor has a flat side. There are gonna be some flat sides you need to adjust to and also shore up. If, uh, if it's really working the best possible way, you've got strengths where he has weaknesses. And if not, try to find other elders who have those and strengthen them. If you have a pastor who's terrible with administrative work, then find an elder who does have good strength that way and help them out. John, you've been an administrator. That's really a great person to have in a church, especially if your pastor is not an administrator. But the pastor has to not be threatened by allowing you to do administrative work for him. And that's a good part, part of that as well. I'm going to have to move on here because I'm bogging down. But I think this is pretty important stuff. So that's why I want to make sure you do. Pastor, your pastor. Um, that may come as a surprise to you. But pastors are subject to stress, and occasionally they need to be told, Pastor, you need a break. Okay? You need a break. And there are times, there may be times of a special stress where you may want to go to the church on Sabbath morning and say, You know, this has been an especially hard two months for our pastor and his family because 
his wife has been sick and in the hospital. And we're going to, we want to show how much we care about them by, you know, we're going to fix a day's worth of meals for them or buy them a ticket to, uh, tickets to Mackinac Island so they can go and get away. And, and I didn't say the hotel, but maybe just tickets to get on the boat and go spend the day as a family. You know, whatever the case may be, pastor your pastor's family and you will find it will be uh, proved beneficial all the way around. Uh, elders can give pastoral assistance to their pastor by accepting their humanity, being a loyal friend like Barnabas to Paul, be a minister of encouragement, be a good listener, and be publicly supportive. Even if you disagree with your pastor on some particular things, support the decisions that are made by the church board or by the pastor publicly so that people don't think that you are somehow divided in the way that you are functioning. Are you with me? And if you can't do that, you need to do one of two things. Probably the first one is to call the ministerial director and ask the ministerial director for assistance in that and say, I'm having trouble here. Now, I may turn around and tell you, you know what, I don't know how to solve that problem because there is a clash here and he still is the pastor. And if you can't manage that, you may need to step down and let somebody else step in who can adjust to that situation and allow that to work. I'm not talking about moral issues. I'm not talking about any of those kinds of things. If the pastor's stealing money or if the pastor's having an affair, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you happen to disagree about the time that you should arrive at church and he says you should be there at 925 and you think you shouldn't be there till 930 and that's a major issue to you and you can't stand having that difference of opinion, then you may need to step down, okay, if you can't handle that. You with me? Understand what I'm getting at? Okay, Marvin? Very destructive to do it otherwise, as it is. You don't want to be the pastor. You want to be supportive of the pastor. And that's your role. And when you do that otherwise, so good point. Thank you very much. Pastor of the pastoral family. Had a situation develop where there was a conflict with, uh, uh, in a church. And in that particular situation... I uh, clearly could see that it was not just the fact that the pastor and the church member are having conflict, but when it starts to involve pastor's kids, we have to be sensitive because many times pastor's kids want to get out of the church as quickly as possible because of the way they were treated by church members. And they can't understand why their father and their family would want to be involved in that kind of ministry when people treat them that way. And we need to take care of our pastor's kids and realize that they are human just like all of our kids are. We shouldn't be more expecting of our pastor's kids than anybody else. If one of those kids is rebellious, then love them anyhow and realize that they are growing and learning along the way. Um, I've seen this over the years. I'm a pastor's kid. My daughter's a pastor's kid. And I've seen other pastor's kids, some who were treated royally and wonderfully, and what a benefit it was to them. Others who, because of their little bit of rebellious streak, or maybe really rebellious streak, were not treated well, and they don't want to have anything to do with God or the church. And we have to realize our responsibility for that. Elders' part is also to uh, 
help the pastor. Sometimes pastors need counseling and help because they're human beings. And most importantly, you need to be praying for your pastor and your pastor's family, just as your pastor is praying for you. Um, all right, there are a number of other items there that I've touched on already, and I'm going to move on to our screen this morning here and move into some slightly different issues. Do you want to mention anything else about what I've just talked about, or are you ready to move ahead? Any questions at all? One yeah, question. Is there a certain length of time that the ministerial association keeps a pastor in the district and then moves them on? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, when you say ministerial association is the right way to do, let me just tell you how we work in the Michigan Conference. The ministerial department, of which I am the director, has two other associates. Wes Peppers is my associate, and his major focus in the ministerial department side of his work is working with our unordained pastors. Uh, we have uh, 20 or so unordained pastors in the Michigan Conference. Most of them have never worked under a senior pastor, which is not the ideal way to do this kind of training. Because of that, we have brought in an associate whose responsibility is to supervise those unordained pastors, and that means meeting with them on a monthly basis or as close to a monthly basis as possible being their senior pastor, holding them accountable with scheduling, holding them accountable with training opportunities, issues that they may be dealing with that need to be addressed, etc., etc. There's an ongoing process taking place. Wes Peppers is that individual. He's also the evangelism director for the conference. That is another hat that he wears as well. It's under the umbrella of the ministerial department, but that's his role, and if you come to me, I'll ask you to go to him in relationship to evangelism unless there's something I need to be involved with. That is his role. The other associate, his responsibility is for our multi-ethnic ministries. We have a lot of different ministries, uh, I should say church uh, groups in the Michigan Conference. We have Rwandans, Burmese, Korean, we have Indonesian, uh, Laotian, Malawian, uh, Rhodesian, no Rhodesian, Zimbabwean, or you can tell I'm an old man, Rhodesia didn't exist <coughs> for the last, what, 30 years or 40 years, something like that. Anyway, all these different ethnic groups, and he oversees all of them because some of them are refugee groups, and those refugee groups are growing significantly. One of those churches over the last uh, three to four years went from about 50 to 100 members to 400. And that's the kind of thing that's happening, and that means basically pastoring a church is what that uh, involves with in that particular situation. All right, the answer to your question, though, is this. Uh, we have a personnel committee that meets, and the, per the ministerial department is part of that personnel committee, that includes the secretary of the conference, the president of the conference, and the treasurer of the conference, together with those in the ministerial department. And we are the ones who uh, appoint pastors to their locations and so on. We have uh, about, we try to keep pastors in a church for five years. That's our target. Try to keep a pastor in a church for five years. In larger churches, a little longer, five to seven years. 
uh, and sometimes a little more than that, uh, sometimes a lot less than that, and that depends on a lot of different dynamics, but those are our targets, okay? All right, here we go. Let's talk about the worship service and discuss a little bit about that. Christian worship is focused on God, uh, and Ellen White tells us that, um, uh, well, let me bring this up here first. I forgot these slides are tiered, so I thought it was all coming up at once. Worship is encountering God. That is coming into His presence. Christian worship is indeed focused on Him. Whispering and laughing, Ellen White says, and talking, which might be without sin in a common business place, should find no sanction in the house where God is worshipped. I struggle with that myself because sometimes I come into churches and I'm, uh, you know, it's a chance to be able to visit with people. I have to be careful about my presence there. You and I have to be careful about that because we're coming into God's house to worship together. Worship includes adoration expressed with singing and prayer. It affirms God's goodness and recognizes His worship, I'm sorry, His worthiness and reverences His presence. Worship includes proclamation. This is a time for the proclamation of God's Word. It includes renewal. It should result in renewal. It involves reflection, prayer, and meditation. It is a time of repentance. It is a time to experience wholeness and peace in Jesus. Now, I want to be... Uh, upfront about some challenges. I don't know how many of you are aware of the emerging church movement and some of the issues that have been connected with that, but there are some ideas about worship and meditation and so on that have no foundation in the Word of God. They border on mysticism, and in some cases they are flat-out mysticism. They have no presence, in, no place in Christianity, and they should not be involved in that. Meditation can be, is a, is a biblical Christian term, but has been uh, hijacked by the devil, and his forms of meditation are like emptying out your mind, and we should never empty our mind. Our mind should be full with the Spirit of God. And if we empty our mind, there's somebody who wants to come and take its place. And uh, we don't want that kind of situation. So I just want to make sure those parts are clear, and that's not what we're talking about here. Worship includes fellowship, sharing together in public worship, gives strength to personal Christian development. Paul made it clear in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as we see the day appearing. Worship includes participation in singing and prayer, giving scripture, reading or sharing our time, remembering anniversaries, birthdays, and other special events in a, is another way to show members that they are important to the church family. It might not be during the church worship service, but it might be at a time when the people are gathered together, perhaps a potluck so that those are not being forgotten. The, per the purpose of worship is... Uh, something that deserves planning. Successful worship doesn't just happen. The service must not be mere routine. Routine. It should involve the coordination of the activities and talents of many people and therefore must be well planned. If you have a small church, you're going to have to use the resources that you have. You may have no music in your church and you're just going to have to work through that. 
But from time to time, I encourage you to look around at other churches and maybe invite someone to come and do special music for your church to enhance that worship service and to be involved in that. I see churches doing that, and it's always a good thing when I see that happen. But also develop the talents within your church. You may have children that are developing some skills and talents who can utilize them in an appropriate way, make them part of what's happening and involve them, if they can't sing, involve them also in scripture and prayer and, and those kinds of participatory experiences in there. But plan ahead of time. If you invite a child to do the scripture reading, make sure that mom and or dad help them practice that scripture reading before they get up there. You can always tell when a parent has helped that child. And if they don't have a qualified parent to help them, don't ask them without yourself helping them. I struggle with that. Uh-uh. With not letting a child up there. Okay. I think there's an appropriate thing for people to do at appropriate times. And I, I don't think it's a problem to involve them in there. I think it's an over overuse of elders to think that only an elder can read the Bible and the scripture. I might reserve the morning prayer for an elder. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me, but there are other parts that need to be involved in that. And I've had elders who've had that same reaction. So I understand that. I I feel that through the future, we must start young, right? Absolutely. With training. And if you don't do it, why would they want to stay in a church they have no participation in? Okay. Yeah, I've seen like the children's story after the individual giving the children's story that many times children don't have any prayer about it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I think everybody in church utilizes to try to figure out to get everybody involved because sometimes you get people involved, sometimes they want to get involved and they never ask. That's exactly right. And part of the reason sometimes when you ask them that they say no is they don't know how. And what part of your work is teaching them how to be involved. And they'd say, listen, like a child, a young child or even an adult, and say, listen, why don't we do the scripture reading together? I mean, they, you might, they might have said, look, I, I can't do that. No, I say, why don't you come and do it with me together? We'll do a responsive reading with the congregation, and I'll lead out, and you can do the responsive reading for, uh, with the, for, the, for the people. And so they're now reading with everybody else. They're not as self-conscious that they're the only voice being heard, and it gives them a chance to be up there and, whoa, I didn't die when I got up there. You know, that's good. Let's talk about preaching for a moment. How many of you have preached a sermon in your church? Okay. How many of you are anxious and waiting for an opportunity to do that? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How many of you wish it would go away and never be a reality? All right. Eight rules for preaching. Let me give these to you here and talk about them. First of all, preaching comes from the heart. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how are you going to tell somebody about what Jesus has done for you? So it has to start there. Preach biblically. That means you preach using the Bible. All right? The Bible is your focal point. The Bible is your, your, um, your textbook. The Bible is what you are trying to communicate to, uh, to the people. Preach relevantly. In other words, how does this apply to their life today? 
that will help them want to listen to what you're saying because it's not just what you're saying but how it applies to their life that makes a difference. Preach positively. You know, sometimes we get into the Word of God and the Word of God has a lot to say about how we should live and so on. We need to be able to talk about how to live, but we need to talk even about the negative things in a positive way. Does that make any sense? We need to accentuate the benefits of doing doing things as well as the benefit of not doing things and realizing the positive nature. Now me, I'm a choleric and I am naturally um, somewhat pessimistic, all right? That's not a great combination. So I have to be extra careful about what I'm doing when I'm sharing the Word of God, especially in, in areas that uh, necessitate change and so on. Be positive, learn to smile, uh, that's that's a hard one for me, I'm afraid. I just, anyway, I don't go there with that. But anyway, be positive and think positively. Prepare early. If you prepare your sermon on Sabbath morning, your people are going to know it. You may get away with that in an emergency, but if that's the only way you ever do it, it will show in your content and what you share. Organize logically. Speak clearly. Organize logically. Basically, they say have an introduction, three points, and a conclusion. And sometimes, you know, people will give it in four or five points, whatever. I'm saying the idea is make sure the things flow from one thing to the next. You start with an introduction. Often it's a story, something that gets people's attention, draws them into it. A sermon that I'm sharing right now, uh, one of the things I do is I ask them the question, how many books are there in the world? Well, that kind of gets their attention a little bit. And then I went and Googled it, and there are 200-some-odd million books, according to Google. They don't really know, but they produced an algorithm to be able to figure it all out, and they did all of that. Well, that draws people into what I'm doing, because I'm going to talk to them about what's the only book you need to read in order to be ready when Jesus comes. And that's the Bible, so that's what I'm talking about. But then I progress through and talk to them about Jesus' parables that illustrate why we should be reading the Bible and how to study the Bible and so on and so forth. Work logically. Speak clearly. Uh, folks, <clears throat> if you can't be heard when you're preaching, why bother? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're reading the scripture reading and you read it real quietly and you don't get up to the microphone, the question is, why are you reading it anyway? Because you're the only one who can hear it. That's not going to help. And you have to teach people how to do that. I know that it's, it's scary to be up front, but I will tell you that nothing is worse than being scared and, and, and saying something that nobody hears. But being scared and being heard helps to overcome that whole problem. So make sure that you can be heard and that you speak clearly enough to be understood. You with me? Okay. That's right. They're gone. They're gone. And if, you're, if it's a sermon, you know, they've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes to not hear you. So, plan annually. Plan with your pastor annually for what the sermons are going to be. One of the best ways to do it is, uh, one pastor was telling me recently, he plans a series. 
and he plans a series, and when he can't be there, the elder or elders fill in in that series. So they already know what they're going to be talking about months in advance, and they know that what their part's going to be in that series that they're doing. Maybe it's on the Ten Commandments. And so you're going to preach on the, ten com- the second commandment because the pastor's going to be gone on the day when they're going to be talking about the second commandment. And that just keeps the flow going and makes it easy and keeps it well organized. All right, I want to talk about nurturing the church a little bit. Let's talk about that. Um, love and unity are Christian requirements. How many of you heard Elder um, Kelly's sermon on Saturday night, I think it was, okay? Um, that, if you didn't hear it, go get it. If you heard it, listen to it again. That was powerful, reminding us of our need to be connected and bonding together. It was on Saturday night, wasn't it? Was that Saturday night? Was that Sabbath morning? Saturday night, wasn't it? Saturday night, okay. I don't want to confuse the two. But. Pretty much similar. Yeah. Absolutely, what we need, right? It's a time when we do need to be unified, and it's a good theme for us right now. But love and unity are Christian requirements. We know, says uh, 1 John three fourteen, that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You and I have a responsibility to help unify our churches. And the only way that we unify is by connecting with each other. And Elder Kelly made that clear. He talked about the experience of um, Scott O'Grady, who was shot down, and how he wanted a team, not just a bunch of people thrown together, to come and rescue him. Uh, that's quite a powerful story, by the way. Acts chapter 2, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's got to be the way it's going to be in these last days that we're going to see God finish His work in us. Yes, please. This, this may have to be discussed afterwards, probably. Mm-hmm. I think you tended on, I've got a, got a unity problem in my church right mm-hmm. now. I am going to be talking about theological conflict on Friday and managing that, and it's related to that whole type of issue and how we have to try to deal with that because some of the basic principles also are applied there, so we'll talk about it there, okay? Absolutely. The elder and church nurture. Christian love produces unity despite differences. The fire of Christian love dissolves the dross of class hatreds racial clashes, social ruptures, and minor theological controversies. One of the valuable things that you are appointed to do, and yet in our churches, the most most neglected task of elders is visitation. And hallelujah, I'm glad you do, but a lot of people don't. One of the reasons they don't is because they don't know how to do it. And that's part of the work of a pastor, is teaching you how to do it. That's where a pastor needs to be pouring himself into the elders and into the deacons and deaconesses who also need to be visiting, all right? 
and talk about that in the next couple of days with the deacons and deaconesses. That is part of their work, part of their responsibility. You as leaders should all be visiting those church members on a regular basis. And I don't mean every week, I don't mean every day, but have a regular schedule, at least annually, preferably quarterly, depending on the size of the church and the number of leaders that you have. Let's talk about that for a moment. The visitation of members can be vital to their spiritual nurture and growth. They may not be growing spiritually because you're not challenging them. You need to be going in there and helping them. I don't say rebuking them and, and abusing them. I'm talking about helping them to grow. That discipleship handbook that we talked about yesterday, Dean said it's a great tool to use for prayer meeting but it can be a great tool in the person's home as well and taking them through that. They may not be growing spiritually because like we know that most Seventh-day Adventists today do not read their Bibles on a regular basis, okay? We know that the general public reads it about four times a year and our statistics in the Adventist church are beginning to reflect that same kind of statistic. Our people are getting lazy, too busy, society's demands and all of that. Find out if your people are studying their Bibles. Don't be abusive in the way you do it. You know, go and visit their home, but don't just find out about their new car or the new floor they just laid down or, or something like that. That may be okay for an initial visit when you're getting acquainted with them. You've never talked to them before. You don't know them very well. That's important, but go visit them again and ask them how they're doing spiritually. How's their spiritual journey? How's your daily experience with Christ? How can we help you with that? Do you have a daily Bible study plan? Of course, you don't have one of your own. This is a good time to get it going. In the back of that handbook is a great Bible study, spirit of prophecy, study plan together. It's what I use. And I've been using that same basic program for many, many, many years. And I repeat it. When I get done with it, I start it over again. Occasionally, I will take a break and I'll bring in something else I need to focus in on because I want to keep my time fresh, but teach people how to do that. I got to keep going. This kind of ministry is one of the most effective ways that elders can serve their people. Home visitation is important for your people because they need to know that you care enough to come. And don't get dissuaded. When I was a pastor 40 years ago in my first church, my, one of my elders said, people don't like people, uh, pastors in their homes anymore. Well, okay, that may be true. But just because they don't doesn't mean they don't need it. The process is when I started ministry or even 40 or 50 years ago, a pastor could wind up knocking on a door one day and opening the door. Oh, pastor, we're so glad you came. How nice of you to stop by and visit. You do that today and they say, why didn't you get an appointment first? Couldn't you call first? We need to do a lot of that. That's okay. But if you can never get an appointment, then you got a concern. And there are ways that you can handle that and work through that. Um, if I have time, I'll try to give you some illustrations. Plan your visitation. That's the most important part of this. It should be part of the Board of Elders or Church Board's, uh, board's agenda. You should be talking about how you are going to visit, your quarterly schedule, who's going to visit who, and designate that. If it's a larger church, have parishes or uh, areas that are responsible geographically or by members' names or whatever you want to do to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. Assisted by a deacon or deaconess could be in charge of a parish zone, which is what I just mentioned. Visiting by appointment can double the effective use of your time. 
and I can tell you strategies of being able to do this so you can get a lot of visits in at the same time. Do it geographically so that you go from one to the other. Don't cross from here to there to there. If you've got a big city that you work in or a a large geographical area in the country, plan your time so that you can get from one to the other in, in, a, in a good time and, in, and try to get it done in one evening in the month. There's a new map app that you can plug in all the addresses and it will actually put, put little bullet pins all over them and number them. I did that when I was passing out stuff for Adrian and passed out 60, 70 things in a couple of days just because of the way it it layers out the root for you so that it's more strategic. So why don't you why don't you send me the link to that? Right, Still, I'm running out of turn. Okay, find it, and then what I'll do. This is one of the ways I want to use that that list that I got. What you signing in? I will pass it back on to the rest of you, and you can use it if it benefits you. Okay, okay? okay. it's fantastic. I appreciate it. Here's what to do when you visit. Number one, be prepared when you go there. Have a reason to go there. Don't just go and knock on the door. Maybe you want to bring a book by. Folks, don't make your first visit. We need more tithe. We need more church offerings. Don't make that your first visit. I know some churches who haven't, elders haven't visited in 40 years, and the first time they go and visit is to ask for money. You know what? They may slam the door in your face, and I got to tell you, if they do that, they probably deserve it. All right, that was a little choleric response to that. But that is just what we need to keep in mind, okay? Be a friend in your visitation. Be friendly with them. Read the Bible. Have a Bible verse that you want to share with them. If you're going out one night in, a, in that particular month to visit the families, take the same Bible verse with you. You want to leave them with you. After you get done visiting, say, you know, I want to leave this Bible promise with you from Psalm... Uh, uh, 109, and, and here's a wonderful promise for you. I want to encourage you with you. And then close with prayer. Ask for Bible interest, I mean, by, uh, prayer questions or, or um, prayer requests, as they have, is what I'm trying to say. And then pray with them. That's a very simple format. Be friendly with them. But in your friendly time, also realize you're their spiritual leader. The first time, be friendly. The second time, be friendly and a spiritual leader. You might want to take a book and say, I'd like to encourage you to read this book. Maybe it's an exciting book. Get a hold of um, the, the uh, oh, what's that? There's a, the Sabbath day ox or whatever it is. I can't. Yeah, absolutely. Get a hold of that book. Take it around to your church members. The reason I've become that one is because it's such an incredible story, and it's easy to read, and people who don't even like to read will read it. Yeah, Seventh-day Ox is what I think it is, okay? So, all right, so you've read it, see? So take something like that with you. Ask your church to invest a little bit of money. You're an elder in the church. If you want to pay for those books, that's fine. But if you can't afford it, ask the church to put in some money so that when you go visiting, you're sharing something with them along the way. And when you get done praying, what's the last thing you do? Leave. Go away. Okay? Time to go home. Don't stand in the door talking for another 45 minutes. People get the idea they can't get rid of you. They'll never get, want you to come back. Oh, I don't hope he doesn't come back. 
I would say the ideal visit, especially the first visit, is 15 minutes. I, I would tell people, look, I'm just coming by briefly. I'm only going to be there 15. Now be careful. If people really start getting to talk, say, you know what, can I make another appointment and come back because I've got another appointment later this evening? Don't let them suck you into that trap. Because if you do, then they will, even though they were the ones asking the questions all the time, they will say, boy, I couldn't get rid of him, even though they were the ones that were doing it. So adjust your time and manage your time, okay? This is all stuff that's trained in their lives. The Emanuel Institute uh, thing that they're doing here probably mm -hmm. touches the same thing. It will help along with that as well. Right. These are all things that I was training that arise to solve similar. Now there's a reason, I see. Absolutely. By the way, if you haven't gone through Arise training and you can work your schedule out to do it as an elder, it, you would be tremendous. Oh, I said Arise. I mean Emanuel training. Emmanuel. You would be greatly benefited. It's Emanuel. Arise was our original program that he went through. So, uh, okay, and the last thing is, write. But don't sit in the car out in front of their home writing some notes about your visit. But make just brief notes. There are even apps that you can use. Your church may have a computer program where you keep track of things. Keep confidential things confidential. Yes? Okay, but keep notes so that you remember if you didn't know the family and the kids' names, write the kids' names down so that you've got that. Next time you come by, you'll remember their kids' names. What a wonderful thing. Shows that you really care about them. All right, I'm going to talk about counseling right now, but I'm going to do it in a very general way because I'm rapidly running out of time. I'm going to give you a rule of thumb when it comes to counseling with people. I'm going to tell you that as you go out and you visit, you're going to run into people who have emotional problems, and sometimes it's just a spiritual problem that needs some basic spiritual counseling. The same counsel that we give to pastors, I'm giving to you. You're not a trained counselor. You're not licensed, and you're not experienced in doing that. You may be an experienced Christian, and as a Christian father or brother, you have things that you can share from the Word of God that can encourage them. But if you cannot deal with whatever it issues they have in one to three visits, you need to refer them to someone else, a professional counselor. We tell the pastors the same thing. You cannot meet the need that person has in one to three visits, refer. The Michigan Conference on the Michigan Conference website, misda.org, has a list of professional counselors from all over the state of Michigan. They have been screened that they are Christian counselors, not necessarily Seventh-day Adventists. There aren't enough of them. That list was prepared by my wife, who is a trained counselor. My wife will not counsel your people over the phone. She's not licensed to do that. Misda.org. Misda.org. And you look under the resources... Uh, I think it's under member services, and you look under ministerial. When you go to the ministerial page, it should show up right there. It says a counselor, counselor's list. I wish I had time to go there and show it to you. For that reason, I'm going to skip over this, except to tell you that all people that care can counsel, but realize your limitations. 
Counsel is just simply saying from your experience and from the Word of God, maybe the spirit of prophecy, what you know that can address those problems. Prayer, study of the Bible, and those kinds of things can be very helpful, but they don't solve all problems when they're deep and end and here. Okay, John? I think it's fairly obvious, but I thought that the, what Pastor Kelly said last evening about uh, a standard in terms of uh, if you go to a house and let's say it's a um, single divorcee mm -hmm. that's there, you need to figure out a way to back out quickly. Let me, I'm really glad you brought that up. When you do visitation, I encourage you to do it in twos. That helps to address that issue. Some single ladies will be a little uncomfortable, especially if they don't know you or know you well, that two men show up at the door. Your wife is a good source for that. Another source of that, if that's not a possibility because of the nature of the situation or your situation, whatever it might be, that's why you have deaconesses in your church. And I have done visitation by saying to a deaconess, I would like you to meet me at so-and-so's house at such-and-such -such a time. They go in their car, I go in mine, I meet them there, we go into the home together, we're ministering to that person, and then I leave and she leaves in their car so that there's no issues along that line. So there's strategies you can use. Marvin? Um, you were talking about people's different situations, and we don't really know their situations because we're not a specialist or analyze that, you know, when they're Absolutely. Absolutely. There are resources. There are video resources. There are classes that you might be conducting. That's one of the reasons you visit, by the way. When you go and you visit, let's say that you went out in your visits. Let's say you're all my elders, all right? You go out and you visit in, your, in the homes. You come back to an elders meeting. Marvin says, I just, you know, I went to four people on uh, Tuesday night, and one of them was just really suffering from depression, having a hard time, and doesn't have the resources to go to a counselor and so on. And, and John comes back and he says the same thing. I found one too, and Dean says, I found one. And, you know, what is the elder team going to do to deal with this problem? It's a good time to say we need a class, uh, Ned Lee's class on depression, right? And managing depression. So that's one of the reasons as you go around, you realize the needs, you begin to address those needs. Okay, I'm gonna keep going to try to pick up as much as I can before we get done here. You can look at these slides on counseling guidelines. Um, their most important piece right here is know when to refer, and I've already told you about that part of it. I want to talk to you a little bit about small groups ministry. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want you to know that Ellen White talks about small groups as being a plan that God gave to his people, and it's from somebody who can't make mistakes, who cannot err. Small groups are a great way. Bible study function, and there are lots of different ways of doing small groups, and I wish I had time to do a whole class on small groups and all of that, but I don't. Uh, realize that that's a great opportunity. Start with your Sabbath school classes. Sabbath school classes, sometimes they get together on Sabbath morning, but wouldn't it be great if they got together on Friday night or they got together you know, once a month for fellowship or whatever. Great opportunities for those people to build fellowship in your church and to have that. I, I'm gonna let you look at those resources there. I've gotta keep going through this. 
and work on that. How many of you have had any experience with small groups and done that? That's great. I wish I had time to talk about it. And uh, if you have, I hope they've been positive experiences. You'll work on them. I want to encourage you to be a praying church. Um, I think, Marvin, you said that you have a, a prayer time at your church. How many of you have a designated prayer time, other than prayer meeting, but a prayer, designated prayer time like on Sabbath morning, some churches are getting together and having prayer? Yeah, or prayer teams, or whatever. Organize your church for prayer. And, and on special needs especially, bring them together. Have a week of morning prayer together for people who can do that, or evening prayer, or do it over the phone. But unite your church in prayer. Prayer is what needs to be happening. Prayer uh, meeting, by the way, I encourage you as elders to be either leading out or at least attending prayer uh, as well. Um, prayer meeting and prayer ministry, uh, starting on time, having some study time, no more than 20 minutes, having some sharing time, and then prayer. Prayer meeting without prayer is hardly prayer meeting. Does that make sense? Make sure the prayers are relevant. Don't allow anybody to be praying for 15, 20 minutes and dominating the whole time. I want to encourage you in relationship to... Um, Social activities. Is your church doing social activities? You need to have time for fellowship in your, uh, in your groups and sharing together uh, and, and not in group of your church. Churches that are growing and showing signs of life also spend time socially doing things together. Make sure they're good, wholesome, and appropriate uh, social activities. Um, elders is supportive of other local leaders. Yeah, I've already, I talked about this yesterday. I'll hit it again. There's a lot more here about how you might be able to support uh, specific local leaders. Your clerk, for example, how you might help that clerk. Local leaders play in an important part in sustaining the morale and encouragement of various volunteer workers. Talk to your clerk sometime and say, how is it going? Do you like your job? What could we do to help your job be easier? She'd say, oh, I sure could use a computer, but I can't afford one, you know? Well, maybe the church needs to invest in a computer for them, or, you know, it might not be the latest and greatest, but something that would be able to help them. At any rate, help your local clerk with many of the tasks that need to be done. The transfer of membership, maybe making sure those kinds of things are being done. The deacons and deaconesses, that's why I encourage you to come to my class the next couple of days. I know you've got a lot going, and you might have a lot of things you want to attend and so many choices you don't know what to do with them. But support your deacons and deaconesses. Go to a deacon and deaconesses meeting. If one's not happened in the last 30 years, it's time for a deacon and deaconess meeting and help the head deacon, head deaconess, to organize it and get all the people there and be there at that meeting to help them, especially if you're the head elder. Personal ministries, another area I want to focus in on. I've skipped a few. Personal ministries, you should be involved in outreach. Support the outreach. Be a part. Have one of the elders in your church should be part of the personal ministries committee and the outreach committee of the church and helping do that. Uh, that make sure that you have a leader there who's really active and doing something and not just a uh, personal ministries leader he gets up and reads a quote from Ellen White on Sabbath morning wouldn't it be great if our Sabbath Sabbath services included a personal testimony of some exciting outreach activity where people were uh, learning about the gospel and or coming to church or whatever 
outreach in community service? Is your community service organization actually doing outreach or is it just handing out clothes? You understand what I just said? And the question that I asked, take a look at it and see. Is there family ministries going on in your church? Is there women's ministries? How's your Sabbath school going on? I already talked to you about overseeing the Sabbath school as an elder and working with that. Stewardship. At some point, if you're visiting your church members, after you visited them several times, one of your visits might include talking about stewardship in general and also about financial responsibility to the local church and making sure your young people are involved in Pathfinders and adventurers and other activities there. Care about your youth. Make sure that you're doing everything you can to support the young adults in your church. We're losing them at a massive rate. One of the reasons is because we're not utilizing them in our church. We're not making them feel that they need to be a part of this church and that they're important enough to this church. All right, all these ministries need to come under the umbrella of the elders and you need to be involved in supporting those organizations there. Many other things we could be talking about. The notes are in there to kind of jog, jog your thinking and deal with that. All right, folks, I need to end. I hope this has been beneficial. It's an introduction to basic uh, 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 principles of elder responsibilities. By the way, I am willing to come to churches and I especially like it when districts will get together. Maybe it's the pastoral district or it's the other. And, uh, and you can uh, do that as well. And I encourage you to take advantage of, of that. If I can come and help you or get all of the elders together and do some training, I'm happy to be able to do that and uh, help to strengthen this along the way. Eventually, I hope to have a video resource, maybe over the next year, developing a resource that you can use in training your elders as well, other elders as well. All right, let's have a prayer, and then I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us. So much to learn, so much to do. But we are so grateful that you help us to do our work and to do it to the best of our ability. I pray that you'll help these elders as they apply these principles and these opportunities. They look at their job description and look at what they can do in a realistic way to strengthen their church and lead out in their congregations. Bless them and guide them, I pray, and give us a good rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.